As we all know, the world we live in is literally awash with technology that gives us answers to our questions and solutions to our problems with unprecedented speed. And for the most part, this rapid access to information has been highly beneficial. But as corporations and governments collect more and more data, people are less and less comfortable with it because it becomes intrusive and annoying. Even worse, simple things like mobile phones have put us in constant contact with working with the people around us, so we get less rest than we ever have. But at the same time, we feel more isolated and unequipped to deal with people in person. When we combine that rapid access to information with advancements in science, it's also drawn us away from God because we think we're beyond the need for God. But we can solve all the world's problems without seeking God's help. The problem with that worldview is that it's failing. It's left us feeling disconnected, empty, and insecure. And that's where the Israelites are at this point in the story. Because the man who's led them for the last 40 years is at the end of his days, and they're on the verge of crossing the Jordan River and entering Canaan without him. On top of that, God's not going to physically lead them as a pillar of fire during the day or a cloud at night as he has for the last 40 years. That means that, for, so to speak, that they'll be alone for the first time in 40 years. So needless to say, the Israelites are probably feeling the same kind of angst a lot of young adults do when they finish school, leave home, and move somewhere to start their own lives. Which is why Moses is forcefully reminding the Israelites of how much they need God, as well as their place and obligations as his people. He's also fully aware of how easily they can be misled, as well as how weak their faith truly is, and how quickly they can fall away from God. So he's spent that every time he's got left giving them the blueprints of how God expects them to live, and what that means for them once they enter Canaan. And that's why this chapter is particularly important, because it's the climax of everything Moses has shared with them. This is the last chance that he and they have. And Moses not only wants to make the best of it, he's drawing a line in the sand and demanding they make a decision about their future. And he uses three steps to do that. First, he gives them a glimpse of their future. After that, he shares God's expectations for them in the present. And then finally, after weighing all the options, he demands they make a decision. So let's look at each of those and see how they apply to us as well. Now, as I mentioned just a moment ago, Moses is now old. He's 120. And he's seen a lot in the last few years, which is probably why he's not real optimistic about the Israelites' future and why he's reminding them of their place as God's people and their call to be obedient to his teachings. But he also wants to leave them with a sense of hope is they make that transition from being a nomadic to a static culture. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart, with all your soul, according to everything I command you to, 
Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he is scattered. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Then the Lord your God will put all these curses on your enemies who hate and persecute you. You will again obey the Lord and follow all his commands on you and you do. Then the Lord your God will make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands, and in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous just as he delighted your ancestors. If you obey the Lord your God and keep his commands and decrees that are written in this book of the law, Turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The word picture that Moses is painting here is very emotional. It's both prophetic and straight for his heart. Moses knows the Israelites better than they know themselves, which is why he's giving them a glimpse of their future and reminding them that despite all their promises and pronunciations, that their descendants won't lift up to them. And the best walk away from God and straight into exile. But he also wants them to see the depth of God's love and compassion. And understand that despite their unfaithfulness, God will ultimately intercede at some point and reshape their faith while restoring their relationship with him at the same time. And it's important that the Israelites see that. Because despite the underlying negative tone of the curses, the wording in these verses is meant to convey that sense of hope by reiterating all the promises God's made to them over the last 40 years. More than anything else, Moses wants them to see that their future and their very existence lays in being absolutely dependent on God and obedient to God's law which is exactly what Ezekiel was trying to get across to a future generation when he wrote, For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. Both Moses and Ezekiel's words are essentially a reminder of humanity's sinfulness as well as how desperately we need to save But they're also a reminder of God's faithfulness unstoppable power and his desire to redeem humanity as well as the rest of creation. And that's something we shouldn't lose sight of either. Because this passage is pointing to a place beyond time and history when the world is the way it's supposed to be and we finally and fully find our identity in God and in His Son Jesus Christ rather than in the temporal things we've always grasped which is why Moses then shifts his focus from the future to look for the present. 
Now, what I am commanding you today is not too difficult for you, beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven, so that you have to ask who will send me to heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Or is it beyond the sea, so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? No, the word is very in you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. One of the problems we face as Christians, and one of the problems the Israelites experience, is as God's people, we always focus on what, where we want God to take us, rather than on what He expects of us in the here and now. And that's exactly what my wife Moses has shifted his emphasis from the future back to the present. He's daring the Israelites, as well as each of us, to let go of what we want God to do, so that we can see what God wants us to do. But the words are also another subtle reminder that God expected them, and again, each of us to live in a way that embraces our relationship with Him, at the same time it exemplifies kingdom life. Moses was challenging the Israelites to trust God, and to leave behind the rituals of Egypt to avoid embracing the religion of the Canaanites so their lives and their culture would be visibly different than the people around them. That way they could be free to be God's people. And to experience the wonder of God's presence in a completely new and deeply personal life. That's exactly what God wants us to do. Instead of embracing the world, He wants us to let go of our innate self-righteousness and trust Him in what He's done for us in Jesus Christ. It's the same thing St. Paul was trying to tell the early church when he wrote. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth you profess your faith and are saved. The scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just as it often was with the Israelites, our circumstances can be overwhelming and leave us filled with fear and insecurity. That's in the same way the world is reacting to the coronavirus. And that's why this part of Deuteronomy 30 and the words of Romans 10 are so important. Because they help us see that God's given us the resources to face what we're confronted with. And God's willing to step in and show us how to use them. And that's what the rhetorical questions in both these passages are pointing to. They're meant to make us recognize that God's nearer than we realize. And that we haven't been abandoned and left alone on life's doorstep. That's why Moses tells the Israelites, no, the word is very new. Because in Hebrew, those words can make a deep and extraordinarily special sense of closeness that the English translation doesn't and can't ever match. But it's also meant to help the Israelites and each of us see the law of what it is. A written and vivid reminder of God's holiness and character. 
the holiness and character that for all our sinful inability, God wants us to emulate as best we can to the world around us because it reveals both our faith and our willingness to be obedient, which is what Moses is challenging the Israelites to do in the last and essentially climactic end of this chapter. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. But I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away, and you are not obedient, if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. And not live long in the land you are crossing the journey to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you, but I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live, and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. For the Lord is your life. He will give you many years in the land he swore to give your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the most climactic and frightening set of verses in the Bible and Deuteronomy because this is where Moses draws a line in the sand and demands that the Israelites make a decision that has immediate and eternal ramifications. It's the same decision Jesus demanded of his disciples as they struggled with the reality of eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate man and died, but whoever feeds on his bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is our teaching. Who can accept it? In this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Just as Jesus did with his disciples, Moses wants the Israelites to understand the ramifications of whatever decision they make. <coughs> The language in these last six verses is unbelievably strong because Moses doesn't want there to be any doubt about what he's asking them to do. And he's leaving them absolutely no room to straddle the fence in terms of following God. Moses is demanding that the Israelites make a sober, reasoned, and decisive choice about their future. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing in the passage I read from John 6. And I would later tell the apostles, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The reality of Jesus' words are simultaneously reassuring and unbelievably frightening. Because they highlight that salvation and eternal life are only made real in what he would do on the cross, and not in anything we do. At the same time, what Moses is pointing to in Deuteronomy and what Jesus is making clear is that our sentimental notions of universal salvation and being a good person are simply a form of tolerant idolatry that distracts and leads people away from the truth 
It's the harshness of Moses and Jesus' words that's hard for us to grasp. Because despite what we read in Scripture, more often than not, we see God as a kindly grandfather instead of a sovereign king who's demanding that we make a decision about following him. And it's that kingliness that Moses and Jesus' words are opening their eyes to and expecting us to accept and live with despite what it may do to our faith, perspective, and worldview. As I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, Deuteronomy is the blueprint of how God expects us to live our lives. Problem is, is that the world hasn't looked at or they've purposely ignored the architect's drawings. That's why their quest to find themselves is failing miserably. Just as sadly, the words of Deuteronomy 30 also highlight both Israel's and our sinfulness, as well as our inability to keep God's law, which was particularly striking in the case of the Israelites, given that God had visibly walked with them for 40 years. But that's also why Moses and Jesus highlight our incapacity to be good, and to be the people God wants us to be. Which is why they point out God's willingness to step in and embrace us despite our recurring disobedience. In many ways, Deuteronomy 30 is the prequel to the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, with the Israelites and each one of us in the role and place of the youngest son. And it's the image of that story, the story of Deuteronomy 30, that we in the world needs to come to grips with. Because both are a picture of God's steadfast covenantal love, as well as God's willingness to reach out and welcome us just as the Father did with his parent son. It's vital that we grasp that. Because until we let the hard earned humility of that youngest son become the essence of who we are, we'll never repent of the failings Moses and Jesus are pointing out. And our hearts and minds will remain closed to the redemptive renewing power of what Jesus did on the cross, at the tomb, at the resurrection, and at the ascension. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are all proud of the sons and daughters of one day. We often set aside our faith so that we can fit into the world around us without feeling self-conscious about our relationship with you and what we believe. Which is why we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to rend our hearts so that we're more dependent on you and on the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us to be responsive and obedient rather than stubbornly resistant. Grant that we would have a servant's heart and humility so that we never lose sight of the redemption and rest we have in Jesus Christ. In his mighty and precious name we pray. Amen.